everyone. I'm Natalie Dale. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Ahead of the Curve. We are a podcast series produced by the Georgia Department of Transportation that spotlights the amazing people, programs, and projects that help make our state's transportation network ahead of the curve. We are back. Welcome back to you as well. We took a short break in the month of January to recoup after the holiday season who didn't need it. So now we are rested, we are revived, and we are ready to jump into some amazing topics throughout the rest of 2024. So let's get to it. If you need a New Year's resolution, if you haven't made it that way yet, make this podcast your New Year's resolution. We'll be here for you. Bridges, trees, and culverts. Do you know what they have in common? I'll give you a hint. They all provide habitat for bats across Georgia. That wasn't even a hint. I gave you the answer. I gave you the answer. They all provide habitats for bats across Georgia. They are also all components of the transportation projects that happen throughout the state. And while naturally they go together, the combination of a bat habitat in one of these locations makes it challenging for GDOT to work on and complete a project. In today's episode of Ahead of the Curve, we are sinking our fangs into how GDOT partnered with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Federal Highway Administration, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and the Georgia Department of Natural Resources to develop a programmatic consultation agreement that will help GDOT's projects move forward while also ensuring Georgia's endangered bats are protected in accordance with the Endangered Species Act. This one might get a little batty, but hang with us to learn all about it after this short break. Hey, Metro Atlanta. Do you know about our heroes? The Highway Emergency Response Operators, or HEROES, patrol Metro Atlanta interstates and respond to traffic-related incidents in the area. HEROES can also assist stranded motorists with flat tires, dead batteries, or in need of fuel or coolant. So if you find yourself stranded along one of Metro Atlanta's interstates or state routes, dial 511 on your phone and select Option 1 to request HERO Motorist Assistance. This is a message from the Georgia Department of Transportation. Welcome back. You're listening to GDOT's Ahead of the Curve. Bat populations have declined significantly over the last 20 years due to a fungal disease known as white nose syndrome, as well as habitat alteration. The decline in bats has led to increased protections under the Endangered Species Act, making it more difficult for Georgia to assure the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that all practicable efforts have been taken to avoid and minimize impacts to protected species. This step, known as ESA consultation or Section 7 consultation, is necessary to complete the NEPA document that allows FHWA to release funding and is required before environmental permitting can be completed on state-funded projects. Currently in Georgia, there are three species of endangered bats, the Indiana bat, the gray bat, and the northern long-eared bat. These three species impact about 30 counties in Georgia. We have a lot of them. 30. In 2022, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed to add the tricolored bat to the list of endangered species. The addition of this bat would impact all 159 counties. Remember, I just said only 30 were impacted. This addition would impact all 159 counties in Georgia, 
making it challenging to complete Endangered Species Act consultation in a timely manner on transportation infrastructure projects across our state. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined in studio by GDOT's Assistant State Environmental Administrator, Doug Chamblin, and Georgia Department of Natural Resources Program Manager for Wildlife Conservation, Trina Morris. They're going to tell us all about this landmark agreement and what it means for Georgia and the bats that live here. Doug, Trina, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you. Doug, let's jump in with you as a member of the department. Give us a little bit of information about yourself. Bats aside. Sure. Uh, unless unless you have a pet bat, which then, then we'd love to know. But bats aside, tell us a little bit about how your background and how you got to the department. Absolutely. So I studied biology in school and got a master's degree in wildlife biology and did wildlife research for about eight years before I came to the department. And I started with GDOT in 2005 and been with the Office of Environmental Services for 18 years and spent 13 of those years with the ecology section, which does uh, the Endangered Species Act studies for GDOT projects. And then I spent a few other years at GDOT also as an environmental program manager. So 18 years with the Department Environmental Services Office. So we were saying earlier in the intro, bat populations have declined significantly over the last 20 years. And if you've been with us for 18, that means you've seen a lot of change in the bat species and how it affects not just our state and our ecosystem, but our projects over your time at the department. Absolutely. I I can tell you when I started in 2005 in our environmental studies, bats were barely a mention. We only had a couple counties at that time that were considered within endangered species range. I think we had maybe seven counties, and now it's the whole state. Not only that, the requirements for survey were different, and generally we had very little consideration and requirements put on our contractors related to bats or avoidance of impacts to bats. But here we are 20 years later sitting here talking about bats on the podcast, which means they are definitely a bigger part of the culture of our projects and how we move projects forward while protecting this species. So we have Trina here, Trina Morris with DNR. Best part of this podcast to me is getting to have people from outside of the department, also Doug, people from the department, (laughs) to be clear, but people from outside the department in because it shows the partnership that we have uh, with other state agencies. I know we work a lot with DNR on, on things with trees. Also, during winter weather, we are all sort of in the trenches together. And so a great partnership. But also at this table, you and Doug working for, for most of your careers together on many things, but among them is bats. But before we talk about bats, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, similar to Doug, I have a degree in wildlife biology, and I actually did my master's work on salamanders. So before I came to Georgia, I was in Pennsylvania. I started working on bats there. I actually came to Georgia as an environmental review coordinator for the Department of Natural Resources. So I started working with Doug right away, you know, reviewing DOT projects and other projects for impacts to species. I kind of started to do a little bit of bat work. And then when we got white nose syndrome, it became the major part of my job. And I kind of became the de facto bat biologist for the state. And since then, uh, I now manage our environmental review staff and our work with DOT, as well as some of our other biologists. And and a big part of our work is to try to work on protecting those species that are rare and endangered across the state from all the different impacts that they have. It's like asking you to pick your favorite child, maybe. Salamanders or bats? Bats. Bats. (laughs) 
Yeah. Not, not big on salamanders anymore. I love them, yeah. but bats are just so cool. And you still learn new stuff about them. And they're just a really awesome species to work with. Well, I think bats are cool. And I don't even know that much about bats. Could you give us because I'm sure a lot of our listeners with me are are interested, but they're not informed. Can you give us a little bit of like a bat 101? Why are bats important? Because I'm also sure someone listening said, ew, what, why, do we, <laughs> why do we need bats or want bats? And can't we just not have bats? But bats are so important. So can you give us a little bat primer? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, we have 16 different species of bats in Georgia, and all of our bats eat insects. That's what they eat. So that's the number one thing that we usually say is bats are important as pest control. They can eat almost their entire body weight in insects in just one night. And that's amazing to think that they're flying around while they're pregnant, eating all of these insects, and then, you know, like just doing it all over again the next night. They are able to do so much for our environment by pest control. And they save us billions of dollars every year by providing that natural service for pest control. So so bats really are a superhero. They are. They really are. Yeah, for sure. I just wanted to also mention that, you know, other things eat bats. So they are food for other animals, too. And they input nutrients into environments that they live in, like caves. That might be the only nutrient source in caves for other animals that live there. And they are, you know, really something that people are more excited about than they've ever been. So one of the things people don't really think about is ecotourism with bats. People are always asking where they can go to see bats. And if you're familiar with the Congress Avenue Bridge in Austin, Texas... That is a huge tourism boost for that city. People come every night to watch the bats come out. You can take a bat cruise or a bat hike. People spend a lot of money to do it. So people love bats, and bats are really important. So I'm glad we're talking about them. The and that's transportation infrastructure. Yeah, it is. The, the new bird watching of yeah. 2024 is the bat watchings. Have, I, I was watching a show, and I can't remember what it was at this time, but they had a whole scene surrounding the bridge in Austin mm-hmm. and the bats, and it was sort of an integral part of this mystery crime drama oh, or whatever, yeah. but they worked it into it. So mm-hmm. let's, give, let's give a hand to the bats, star, <laughs> star of the show, star of this show as well. Um, give us a little history. Uh, whoever wants to take this is the history of the endangered bat species in Georgia, because we talked about there was only two on the list, but we have been moving toward adding more and having to address that. So how have we sort of moved in this process in Georgia? Yeah, I can take the basic background, Doug. Um, So we did have a couple of endangered bats, the gray bat, which has been endangered since the 70s, and it uses caves in the summer and the winter, which is unusual. Most of our bats just use caves in the winter. So it wasn't that much of a problem for transportation because they don't really use trees. Um, And then the Indiana bat, which is more of a Midwestern species, we really didn't have many records in Georgia, so we didn't have to pay that much attention to it. We hadn't seen it in a long time. That was kind of what changed in 2012 when more bats kind of showed up on the landscape unexpectedly and caused us to scramble. But what really happened was that white nose syndrome arrived in our state in 2013. And that is when we started to really see our bat numbers decline. And that's primarily been impacting our tricolor bats, which used to be the most common cave bat in Georgia. And now they've declined by 90% roughly in all of the caves that we survey in the northern part of the state. So their declines have been very significant, which is why we're talking about bats 
deaths today. Is this a sort of fatal disease or is this just impact how they feed, how they mate, how they act, how they reproduce? Are we talking about significant decline due to fatal disease for these bats? Yes. Yeah. When a cave gets the fungus, which was, it, it is commonly found in Europe and Asia. So it was likely brought to New York state where it was first found in 2006, 2007, maybe on somebody's boots or gear that had been at a site in Europe or Asia. And our bats are naive to this fungus. It was not found in North America before, and it only grows in cold environments. And these bats, when they hibernate in caves, they reduce their body temperature so that they don't have to use energy to stay alive. So that fungus is then able to grow on their skin membrane, and it actually erodes away their skin and eats large holes in their wings, and it causes them to die from, partly from, you know, just the fungus infecting their skin, but also it wakes them up from hibernation too many times, so they die from starvation. Doug, tell us a little bit about, we've heard from a DNR perspective, but from a GDOT perspective, kind of walk us through the timeline of endangered bat species and how that has impacted projects over the past 20 years and how we do it and how we've had to sort of develop partnerships with DNR to, to better manage. Sure. So when the white nose syndrome started coming through the East Coast, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, was high alert as far as bat, watching bat populations. They could literally track this fungus moving from north to south, and they knew it was going to get to Georgia. It hadn't, maybe hadn't been detected quite yet. But in 2012, there was such concern when a, uh, a study was able to find Indiana bats in North Georgia. They really re-examined how we were treating bats. That affected GDOT probably the most. But almost overnight, the range of the Indiana bat was expanded from a couple counties all the way to 30 counties, meaning that in all those counties, we now had to discuss bats in our environmental document and discuss how we were affecting them and what we were going to do to offset the impacts or avoid and minimize the impacts. So this was not something we were used to doing, and we didn't have a great amount of baseline data on the bat presence. So in 2012, we um, started doing very labor-intensive survey, the MISNET surveys, which uh, we didn't have anyone in the state consultant-wise who had the permits to do it. We had a delay in over 100 projects while we got caught up on this survey. So around 2012, we spent a lot of money and got a lot of data on bat populations and bat presence. And we started getting our projects moving again once we had a process. But that delay is something we absolutely wanted to avoid happening again. We want to be prepared, and we've been thinking about that since 2012. And we'll get into that more with this agreement and how that protects us against that sort of thing happening again. Because the landscape, as far as regulations on protected bats, is changing. And we had northern long-eared bat listed in 2014, and, and then... As mentioned, the tricolor bat proposed for listing now in 2022 and is about to be listed as endangered. Our agreement is, is a way of kind of protecting us against future listings, getting us ready. As we know, bats are still declining and more species may be listed. We have a mechanism. We have a framework for dealing with them. So you mentioned the agreement. So, so we have two complementary agreements. One is the programmatic consultation agreement and the bat conservation funding agreement. Give us a little background on these two agreements because they're how we're going to build the rest of this conversation. Sure. I'll talk about the consultation agreement, which is under the Endangered Species Act, 
we have to assure Fish and Wildlife Service that we're not doing activities that will jeopardize the continued existence of the species. We also, on an individual project level, have to show that we've done all we can to avoid harm to those species. And when we go through that process, proving that to the agencies on a project level is very labor-intensive. It requires preparation, lengthy documents on the GDOT side, and then those have to go to Federal Highway as a lead federal agency to review. And then Fish and Wildlife Service responds with their own lengthy document. That process overall to prepare our document and Fish and Wildlife prepare theirs takes over six months. So our approach with this agreement is rather than going through that on every single project individually, which would lead to a massive amount of work when we have a species, uh, the tricolor bat that exists in every county, we are going to look at the entirety of GDOT's program and consult on it all at once. So this agreement is, is pretty lengthy because it describes basically everything a GDOT project might do and how it might affect bats and what we're going to do to minimize the effects. In a way, it, it's an efficient way of complying with the Endangered Species Act at the scale of GDOT's program rather than looking at projects individually. And by kind of negotiating at that level, you almost get like a bulk discount because you're doing good things across the state. If you negotiate on an individual project level, you might come out with different approaches depending on who you're working with at the Fish and Wildlife Service. And with this, we have predictable avoidance and minimization measures, predictable timeframes, and we've looked at the entire program for bats. So we've, we've saved, it's just a, a huge efficiency gain. And a center point of this agreement is conservation payments that we'll be making to DNR, which is the companion agreement you mentioned. The funding part is in a separate agreement for bat conservation. And I will let Trina kind of talk about that from their perspective. Yeah, so um, the funding agreement basically allows us to take the money that DOT has is giving us based on how many trees are removed from the landscape every year because we know that tricolored bats can be anywhere in any tree pretty much any time of the year, which makes them unique compared to other bats that have been on the Endangered Species Act that might have been very specific. Because going back to the the sort of original three that we had or the original two that we had, you could pretty much well determine where they would be. Bridges, you know, caves, which obviously don't affect, but as part of infrastructure projects, it was really under bridges. Tell me about culverts too. But the fact that they're living in trees all the time, year round, see, that's a game changer. Yeah, the other bat that was in trees, the one that came in 2012, the Indiana bat that we started to find, that caused more problems because they use trees in the summertime, but they're very specific. They use really large, older trees with bark coming off generally. Tricolored bats, they can be in a tree underneath a clump of old leaves that fell on a branch, and then they're under there using just that little shelter to raise their pups. So that could be anywhere on the landscape. The tree doesn't have to be a certain species or a certain size, so there's no way for us to actually predict when we're going to lose habitat because any tree could be habitat for the tricolored bat. We are a tree state. Mm-hmm. I mean, fly above other states. We've got trees. Yeah. So we've got lots of places for these bats to be then. That's right. Yeah, and they can be along right-of-ways and places where trees are being removed. And, you know, one of the things that we've always worked with DOT on is we know that 
all of us are using our transportation systems and these things are, you know, trees are going to be removed. We have a lot of improvements to do. So in order to make an agreement that really made sense, we wanted to do something good to balance the transportation expansion that has to happen in our state. And this agreement really helps us to take money that is specifically earmarked to help bats. And what we're doing at DNR is identifying areas that we can protect with these funds that could provide really good bat habitat, not just for tricolor bats, but for all of our bats in Georgia. And we're doing that with our state wildlife action plan by specifically targeting areas that will be beneficial for bats. And then we can use these funds to purchase those areas and protect them in the long term, which is a much better situation than trying to protect a few trees right along the interstate versus a large tract of land in intact forest habitat that's going to be really beneficial. So that's the primary thing probably that this funding goes towards. Is there anything else that that this funding supports? Yeah, we could use it if we needed more research, say, on some of these species that were uncertain areas that they're using. Or, as Doug mentioned, we used to have a lot of mist net surveys. Those are really labor-intensive and time-consuming. And because bats have declined so much, they're not as successful as they used to be. But they're still really the only way to detect some of those species on the landscape. So in the future, we may want to go back to sites that we surveyed before and resurvey them to see what we're catching now. So we could use these funds for that in the future. Future. So when we are identifying, there, there's a couple things that I think people probably don't know about because I did not. But when we look at the Endangered Species Act, so we, we're here, we've got the funding to promote conservation. What happens as that grows? How often does that grow? Are we looking at more bats being added to that list in the future? And will that affect, um, will that affect more projects, funding? Or is, is this agreement really set up to last, to to sort of last through changes that we would see, bats that were added. Um, Have we set a foundation here in Georgia that gives us sort of a step ahead of the ever-changing dynamic of endangered species and having to go back to the table and redraw an agreement? Have we set ourselves up for long-term success with these agreements? I'd say yes. I'll let Trina talk about future listings, but as far as, as a GDOT perspective, that was one of our major goals is... Well, what happened in 2012, a lot of us, that really was a difficult time for environmental services. We were on the news almost every night in Georgia as far as delaying projects. And, you know, this agreement is built in a way that it's a framework for future listings. It would take very little effort, just a few paragraphs added to this over 100-page agreement the next time a bat is listed for it to also be covered and get this same streamlining benefit. Do other states have agreements like this? or No. This is the first of its kind, and we've had a lot of states reach out to us to ask to see it, and we've shared it with a lot of, a lot of our partner states through the uh, other DOTs uh, that we have contact with. In addition to this being sort of a product of GDOT, something that other states can learn from, are other states having the same problems? Are we unique in because of the amount of trees we have? Are we unique because as a state, you know, we talk North Georgia, we talk coastal Georgia, we're very dynamic as a state as far as varying sort of ecosystems. Do other states have the same issues that we have or seeing the same problems? Or are we unique in that aspect? Well, I, I've, in talking to other DOTs, they're dealing with the, with bats across the nation. The range for the Tricolor bat is 40 states, so it's massive. But every state is a little bit different in how they're affected. Uh, you know, Kentucky, for example, ha- has a lot of caves, and they have had massive consultation issues with bats 
way longer than we have because it is kind of like an epicenter in a way of hibernacula. Other states as well have just dealt with it a little longer and deal more with Indiana bat or depending on the range, some might have deal more with northern long ear bat. Georgia tricolor bat is by far our, our most challenging that we've had. We had means of dealing with them through restrictions on when, when contractors could clear trees. We could avoid harm that way. There's no real restriction you can do for tricolor bat in a lot of the state because they will be out on the landscape throughout the year. We have different challenges each state, but definitely bats are big throughout the country. And how do we educate our staff, GDOT staff, our contractors about what they're looking for when they are sort of in those preliminary steps of a project when they see a bat? to know if it is a protected species, to know how to work around that. Do we prepare? Do we train? What are the steps that we take to make sure that we're all on the same page with DNR, with fish and wildlife um, in certain aspects outside of bats? But how do we know that we're all on the same page when it comes to identifying and protecting and doing the right thing? Well, this is one of the areas we have been partnering with Trina and her group at the DNR for years and years, and they provide amazing training to all of our consultants and all of our staff on how to find bat roosts on bridges and culverts. And Trina, I'm sure, can tell us more about that training, but it's been a massive uh, game changer for our staff. Yeah, and just as a little background, bats are on different parts of the landscape at different times of the year. So when we talk about the tricolor bats using trees, generally they're using trees in the summertime to raise their pups, and they're staging in trees throughout the winter in South Georgia where it's warm. But then they're using culverts mainly in the coastal plain of Georgia for winter hibernation sites because there are no caves there. And we put things on the landscape that are very similar to caves, which provide them with some protection in the winter. Time. Some of our other bat species actually raise their pups on bridges. And so we realized early on when we started looking that we really needed to do this more systematically to make sure that we knew about these structures that had bats on them early in the planning process. So we worked with DOT to support and develop a training program. And it's just one day we take people out in the field and we go to examples up in northwest Georgia on bridges and culverts that have bats and don't have bats and we look at different levels of roost size so showing you how it's really easy when you walk up to some bridges you're like oh yeah there's bats here other times it's like you have to know what to look for so we just show them all of that in the field and we provide standard field data collection sheets so that they can collect data for us and now we have a survey protocol and it's done early on in the planning stage so we know where these structures are that we have to pay more attention to. We have a project moving, we have things happening, and and I find a bat. What do we do? Say we have a bridge replacement project. The ecologist would be, you know, have gone through Trina's training, and when they go out, they're going to look for uh, nesting birds as well as roosting bats. So they find bats. A lot of times they're pretty tucked into uh, the expansion joints, and the average ecologist probably doesn't have the expertise to identify them just seeing kind of like a nose and some and maybe the tips of the wings so they'll take pictures we will rely heavily on trina and her team as well as the u.s fish and wildlife service depending on um, who's available we'll often either identify them through photos or get them out in the field with us to help so because we have a lot of a lot of species that are that like bridges and are not federally protected. And that's generally what we end up with 
but we still they still get protection under state law. So we still have to take steps to avoid harm. I know that there is within this partnership, but just within your office, Doug, there is a passion for protecting the environment and making sure that we are doing right by our projects and the state and our environment and our landscape. And I hope that people, especially those listening to this episode, and we have some more coming, understand, we certainly hear often that we don't protect or love the environment the way that some people want us to. And everyone in this building really takes to heart the the call to protect our environment while doing what we need to do to move Georgians and people safely through Georgia. Um, and so your department and this partnership has a lot of credit for that. Is there anything you want to say about that? Because I know that's a sure. that's a common misunderstanding that we just, we plow through and we, we don't look back. Right. No, um, it's absolutely part of the process in developing every GDOT project to balance the needs of the traveling public with the environmental impacts. So we are looking at you know, streams and wetlands and trying to avoid our impacts to those. And we're looking at rare plants. We're looking at bats. We're looking at uh, nesting birds. And we are a growing state, and everyone, most all of us, are, rely on the roads to get around. So it's inevitable there are going to be impacts um, until we live in a world where, you know, cars aren't as prevalent when we have, uh, when we're able to have flying cars, we won't need to, you know, churn up the earth to make new roadways. But as long as we have to do that and, and accommodate the needs of, of the a growing public, we are going to have impacts. And that's where this partnership is so important. And their primary mission is protecting the environment. Our primary mission as an agency is improving transportation and maintaining transportation infrastructure. But together, and following the federal laws and state laws on the books, we are working to minimize the environmental impact as we still meet the needs for travel. And in doing so, have reached an agreement on, well, we've reached two agreements. We've reached <laughs> an agreement on the agreements. And that, <laughs> and that streamlines the process, but cuts us down from, you said, six months originally to 21 days? Right. Really, all we have to do is document in our... Um, reports that we are following the agreement and then the agencies have 21 days to review that whereas before without this agreement we would be handing them a thick document and they'd be handing us a thick document back basically saying yes you've done all you can however it's important probably to note that the payments that we're making are greatly offset as a cost to the state by the streamlining and lack of delays, uh, not only on the side of preparing the environmental documents, but to contractors, because we've reduced the amount of restrictions on contractors through this agreement. We're providing habitat somewhere else so that the trees on this corridor can be impacted. And a lot of times that can be any time during the year. We do still try to avoid some sensitive months where they might be rearing young. And so we'd still are trying to avoid a couple months in the summer. But even that, we have the ability as needed. If a project is high priority, we have the ability to, to allow clearing even in those months. I hate to use the phrase time is money when we're talking about also protecting the environment and protecting endangered species. But it must be said that a project that moves forward at a more consistent pace with other projects, uh, you're getting 
materials probably at a better cost to your timeline so you have a better cost to the taxpayer in a project. But this conversation is important because it proves that it's not at the expense of the environment or the species. It is just a bonus that this has brought this into a very reliable, condensed timeline that protects where all agencies are on the same page, all agencies are in agreement, and also delivers to the taxpayer a well-maintained budget for a project. Yeah. From a DNR perspective, how do you feel about that, Trina? I think that it is such a, a winning solution for everybody. And, you know, as Doug said, other states are really looking to this and we're trying to share the information about how we worked it out. And, you know, Georgia is is 90% private land. So the animals that are relying on these trees on our landscape don't necessarily know they're going to be there next year. And we have a lot of landowners that take great care of their land and and work with us and our private lands program to protect species on their properties. But if they're interested in selling land and we have money available to buy it, that provides not only habitat for bats, but habitat for all of our wildlife, our plants and other animals. And it provides us place for people to recreate you know you can go out and hike and you can hunt and fish on these properties and it's there's not as many opportunities in Georgia for that public land use as other states so that's another way that we're winning by by using these funds to protect land in the long term the goal is always to recover the species and this actually gives a pathway much more of a realistic pathway for recovery than we have had in the past because we're providing habitat you know, forever for these species in exchange for the habitat lost on the project. And they're very strategic purchases that restore corridors that are important for bats. So it's not just little patches of woods here and there that bats have to find. They're looking very strategically using their state wildlife action plan uh, at, at what properties would get the most bang for the buck. So where are we in 20 years with this? That's a good question. Um, We don't want more species added to the Endangered Species Act, so we're hoping that this will help to provide habitat for those species and prevent future listings. We also hope that we'll see more land protected on the landscape and that we'll see, you know, increases in the numbers of bats that we see on our landscape because they have safe places to raise their young and to live on our landscape. I think we'll continue to have partnerships with DOT to have other agreements like this that will protect other species. You know, this is our bat programmatic. It covers all of our bats in the state, and that's super exciting. But there's plenty of work to do on other species. But now we have an example of how it can work. So I think it's really exciting. Doug, where are you in 20 years? (laughs) Um, So, yeah. On vacation. (laughs) Retired. (laughs) Retired, um, Still caring about this. We'll, we'll, uh, Trina hit on an important point. This is just one group of species. We still do have a lot of work on other species. You know, Georgia has a high diversity of freshwater mussels. Certain parts of the state, we have a lot of protected fish, endangered fish species. So, you know, this approach is kind of a blueprint for approaching other groups of species where you can bundle them and look at the entirety of GDOT's program to streamline project delivery when it comes to the aquatic species as well, and then who knows, plants after that. But the money, you know, from a GDOT perspective, is not, it's not a great deal. To your point earlier, time is money. We're, we're allowing the contractor to move more, more swiftly 
if we have restrictions, that's going to cost the taxpayer in bid prices. Their contractors are very smart when they see that there's a restriction on work during a certain time of year. They're building that into their cost that it's going to take them longer to do the project. So the money is not is is really it's saving taxpayer money, not not costing. We're paying a uh, for the bat programmatic a USDA real estate value that's set for each state. It's roughly four thousand dollars an acre. So for tree clearing on a project, we would pay four thousand dollars an acre into the fund. That that's not a lot for some of these massive projects. If you you know you're clearing twenty acres. That would be $80,000, but that pro- a project that clears that much is probably a $100 million project. Right, it's right. Really, it's yeah. really a drop in the bucket from a GDOT standpoint, but the long-term benefit and the recovery on that investment is only time will tell, but it's, it's huge. And it's a win-win. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. We don't have to protect a project or protect the environment. You both prove, and these partnerships prove, it can all be done, and we want it all to be done. I would even go say it's a win-win-win. We have BATS benefiting, we have the traveling public benefiting, and we have recreation and other benefits that can be thrown in as an additional win. So it really is a great model. And the Endangered Species Act has this language in it that says if you're doing conservation activities, that can offset your impacts. That's not a part of the Endangered Species Act that we've really utilized in Georgia in a lot of states. And um, that's why this is such a kind of landmark, not just for, for Georgia, but how other states are going to view it as an approach that really streamlines and benefits species. Georgia is lucky to have you both on this. Looking well, I'd, at I'd this. be remiss if I didn't thank other agency partners who were such key players. Primarily, that would be the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. A- incredible expertise in bats in that agency. Lacey Padovina was our bat expert, but as far as this approach, Eric Prowl at U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service really envisioned it and talked internally with his agency to make sure it would meet the legal muster, and he got kind of cleared the path for this to happen, and once we finished the agreement, the approvals took almost no time. It's important to have everyone on the same page, Mm -hmm. and it sounds like a great team moving things in the right direction for transportation, for our environment. So thank you both so much for being here today to educate us more about this because I think it's incredibly fascinating and something that we will keep track of in the future, not just for bats, but for other species, other landscape things that will need our attention. But I know we have a great foundation with these agreements to move forward. So uh, next time we talk to you, we'll see where, where we're at. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. While the future of bats in Georgia is unknown, GDOT, Georgia DNR, and other partner agencies are working to mitigate the impacts on them. This was a great episode, but if you have an idea for an upcoming episode or you just have a question, reach out to us at aotc at dot.ga.gov. Again, that's aotc at dot.ga.gov. Join us next month for another exciting episode of Ahead of the Curve.